So that's Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we are at tonight, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to be open to you and what you have for us as individuals and as a church. Lord, please uh, show us some of these wonders that we've been singing about. Uh, Lord, surprise us, encourage us, challenge us, speak to us how you want to, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder what the... um, the greatest treasure you've ever found or some of the greatest or most valuable treasures you've ever discovered. Um, I'm not talking about the time that I found 20 pounds and spare change down the side of the sofa. I'm not even talking about the time that I found a Kit Kat chunky that was only made out of chocolate, although that was amazing. Um, I'm talking something like this. In 2009, a guy called Terry Herbert who's an amateur treasure hunter, was searching a newly ploughed farm field near Hammerwich in Staffordshire when his metal detector pinged. Um, He got the permission of the landowner and uh, and over five days of digging, he found over three and a half thousand objects, all uh, all, all military objects made of gold. There was 11 pounds worth of gold. Um, We've got a picture here, 11 pounds worth of, of gold items. Um, for, as in weight, uh, three pounds worth of silver items and semi-precious garments, uh, garnets and stuff, valued at over three million pounds. Um, and people discover stuff that's even more valuable than that. But amazing as, as that is, Christians have a far greater treasure than any hoard or anything like that that you could dig out of the ground. Something far more valuable. And that's what we've been looking at in the first three chapters of um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's been Paul uh, opening up this treasure chest of riches in Christ. And we've got some of them listed on the screen here. You can either um, look at them as I read them along or perhaps you just want to close your eyes. Um, there's so much we've been looking at. These, these wonderful overflowing riches that all who trust in Jesus have in him. Paul has been saying in these last three chapters that we are chosen, adopted, redeemed, predestined, included, sealed, enlightened, empowered, brought from death to life, at peace, reconciled, with access to the Father, fellow citizens, a holy temple, rooted in love. What a list. What a treasure trove of riches that we have in Christ. 
These are, these are treasures that the world are looking for, except they don't even know what they are. So as we get to, to Ephesians chapter 4 today, as we've thought about these amazing riches that we have in Christ, this treasure trove of riches, Paul then gets on to the duties we have as Christians. And these shouldn't be dry duties that we just feel obligated to do. This is something that we've, we've just got to do. This is something that we can't wait to start doing. Because we are so rich. The treasures are, are so overflowing. We're just wanting to live this out. But we find it hard. As we're looking at today, Christians can, can often not live this kind of life. In fact, they can live unworthily of these riches that they have. Paul is going to tell us as we look for these next uh, three chapters, don't forget these riches. They come before duty and, and duty is the loving response. Because this is how we can live a worthy life because of the riches we have from Jesus. I wonder how easy we find it living out the implications of who we are. Believing that we have these riches How easy do we find living that out? I wonder, as we look at that list on the screen, how that is going to affect our behaviour in 24 hours' time. Whatever we're doing tomorrow night, whether it's travelling back from work, whether it's sitting at home, thinking about what to watch on TV, or, or spending time with a friend or family, around the dinner table. How's this list going to affect our lives? Whether we're living a life worthy of Christ. So in response to Christ's riches, are you living a worthy life? Paul's going to tell us why we need to, and he's going to show us how we're supposed to show it as well. But firstly, why we need to do it. Have a look with me at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is telling the church in Ephesus that you are to live a life worthy of the calling that you have got as a Christian. You are to walk in a way that shows that there is something in here that is very different. And Paul is saying this as a prisoner. Someone who who freedom on the outside doesn't look all that obvious. It doesn't look like a, a worthy life, perhaps, the life of a prisoner. Being a prisoner for the Lord... Prison isn't a glamorous place to be now, and it certainly wasn't in Paul's day. Paul's experience, he probably would have been lowered down into this dark room, uh, sort of dug out of the ground, probably tied or, or handcuffed to a soldier, and the whole while facing the possibility of execution. Not the kind of thing that looks like a, a life lived well, a worthy life. But it's from this position, notice, that Paul makes his appeal to the church to live a worthy life, to walk in the way that shows that they know these treasures in Christ. You see, Paul isn't asking people to do something that he isn't already doing himself. Whatever the situation of the person in that church in Ephesus, Paul isn't asking them to do something that he isn't already trying to do. So he urges them, he he exhorts them, he, he pleads with them to live a worthy life 
based on their calling. Now what is, what is our calling? Calling is some one of those words that perhaps we use in all sorts of different ways. We, we think about, well, this is my calling to serve in this kind of area. And, and that can be true. But, but there is a calling that is common to actually all of us, all of the people who follow Jesus. And I think this guy here got it spot on. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, although with a kind of trendy background. Um, German uh, pastor and theologian uh, who was killed uh, by the Nazis during the Second World War. And uh, he said this, this is the call of a Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls someone, there is a death involved. A death to an old way of living. But it's in that dying, in that death, that actually receive life. It's in dying that we are born to eternal life. And, and death for a Christian, that, that call to die, looks different depending on who we are and, and, and what our lives have looked like before becoming Christians. That might be death to certain habits or behaviours. That might be death to, to gossip. That might be death to, to certain sins or temptations that we, we choose to leave those things behind. It doesn't mean we, we're perfect and, and we're never tempted back to those things. But they are now dead to us. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But for some of our brothers and sisters around the world, that might be a literal call. That in, in following that call to follow Christ, to, to receive those, those immeasurable treasures, might mean literal death. Some countries that is the case, even still today. But why is this an attractive proposition, the idea of, of dying to things that we quite like doing, or perhaps even uh, facing a literal death of persecution? Why would this be an attractive proposition for any of us? Well, it's because the, the riches, the treasures of Christ far outweigh any death that we would face. This is our calling as Christians to live a worthy life for Christ. What does it mean though to, to live a, a worthy life? How, how can we do that? Well, firstly what it doesn't mean. Living a worthy life doesn't mean that we try and make ourselves worthy. A lot of people can fall into that trap of thinking. That, that living a worthy life, living a good life is about trying to make ourselves worthy before God by doing good things. By doing things that kind of that, that numb our conscience into thinking that we're all right, or at least we're not as bad as some other people. That's not what it means to live a worthy life. Can't kid ourselves, we can't get kid God. No, living a worthy life is, is living out these implications of these treasures that we have in Christ. If we really believe that, that God has forgiven me, then we are forgiven you, then we are going to live that out differently, aren't we? When someone does something to, to hurt you, someone says something mean to you. I was, I was having a chat with my son who's uh, at a party and um, one of his friends said something not very nice to him. And we were talking about actually how the call to be a Christian means that we've got to forgive someone, even if it's really hard, even if it seems unfair. But we have been forgiven of so much. So we must show 
forgiveness to those who do wrong to us as well. That is one example of living out the implication of a worthy life. It's living out the implications of God's abundant riches. If you want to live a worthy life, then that's what you've got to do. You don't try and make yourself worthy. You can't. But neither do you live as if nothing has changed. Because it has. That's why we need to do it. Secondly then, this is how we're supposed to show it. This is how we're to show that we're living a worthy life. We need to hear this because Christians actually can all too easily fall into living in the consequences as if nothing has changed. We fail to live out these implications of the riches we have in Christ. Have a look with me then at verse 2 to 3. Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now there's a lot of compelling um, words in there to help us to think about what it means to live a worthy life. Let's, let's go through them and, and think about what they mean. So in verse 2, Paul says, Be completely humble. Now this guy, Leonard Bernstein, he was the the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. And he was once asked to to name the most difficult instrument to play in the whole orchestra. And without hesitation he replied, it's the second fiddle, the second fiddle. He says, I can get plenty of first violinists, they're never at a shortage. But to find someone who can play the second fiddle, With enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Paul says, be completely humble. Now, it's not easy to be humble. It's certainly not easy to be completely humble. But humility, being humble, begins when we realise that we don't need to prove ourselves anymore. We don't need to play first violin. We can play second fiddle with all passion and all delight, whatever that looks like in our life. We don't need to prove ourselves. What a joy to know that. So many people spend so much of their time trying to prove themselves either to themselves or to the people around them. We don't need to do that. Because the one and only person whose opinion about us actually really matters, well, he loves us. We don't need to prove that to him. Paul says, be humble. Paul also says, be gentle. We see that in that second bit of verse 2. Paul says, be gentle. Now, gentleness, if you think about it, it it's, a, it's a virtue, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing, but it's probably not something that many people aspire to, just like humility. But they should, because gentleness is, is a beautiful thing. Gentleness isn't weakness. People often think that that gentleness is weakness, but it isn't. Gentleness isn't weakness. Rather, it is actually a restrained power. It is a restrained power. It's, It's like the world's strongest athlete holding a tiny little baby duckling in his hands. 
It's a restrained power. It's not weakness. Paul says be gentle. And it's especially important to be gentle when people are feeling bruised. There'll be all sorts of people uh, in our church who will be feeling bruised or or, or battered or, or just feeling down at the moment. That's why we need to be gentle with those people. And that gentleness can require a huge amount of patience. Which is why Paul says, after that, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul says we need to be patient, which means we need to trust God's timing in these things. We don't want to speed things up. When things don't seem to be moving along how we would like them to, we need to practice patience. That means that we don't give in to being quick-tempered or just giving up on someone or something. Paul says, be patient. Take the long road with people and bear with each other. Stick it out with that person, perhaps that person who always seems so needy and you feel drained by. When we do this as a church, amazing things happen. Paul says when we practice humility and gentleness and and patience, the church, actually what it does is it gets energised for unity. It it just draws together around Christ. Have a look at verse 3. Paul says, make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now Christians share a unity with each other, a, a, a oneness. They are united with each other because they are united in Christ. That word in Christ comes up time and time again in Paul's letter to Ephesians. We are united together because we are united to Christ. And that is a unity that that often the world just doesn't see. That is a a unity that we share as as a church here, but it's also a unity that we share with the church around the world. Maybe you've experienced that when you've been on holiday somewhere and you've visited a church and they have welcomed you. I remember we had an experience where I went to a church in Spain and uh, they were all speaking Spanish and uh, and I couldn't. But I was singing along with their songs. I don't know what they thought I was doing. But it was great. And, uh, And in some kind of mixed language between English and Spanish, we were able to actually experience some kind of fellowship. Actually, gave me a DVD about about I think it was maybe about speaking Spanish, but we've just shared that that warmth, that that fellowship, that that unity that we share in Christ, and that is a wonderful thing when you experience it. So we should definitely see it in this church. But we need to be energized. If we're not being gentle and humble and patient, then it's hard to be energized about unity. Because the people around us, well, they're not going to be objects of our affection and of our love, but they're just going to be people that we find draining. We need to be energised to see that despite our differences, and there are differences, we want BH to be a place where we are united together in Christ. That's why Paul says make every effort to keep this unity. But all too often, we're, we're, we can be lazy about this. Which is why Paul says that we've got to make every effort. I wonder, are you making every effort, every effort to keep 
that unity that we share. I wonder how much we care about unity in the church, in this church. Are we energised to see that despite our differences, we want to be a place where we are united? Or do we let our cares push that thinking out? Paul says we can't be lazy about this. We can't just think this isn't important or it's for some people. So where difference or behaviours could damage our unity, please keep unity through the bond of peace. What we share together in Christ, these treasures, is far greater than what divides us. Now to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to, to get excited and energised for unity, these things are hard. They are hard. And only one person has ever really mastered these qualities perfectly. But one of the riches of being in Christ is that he is in us. So these things are not impossible. It's not just pie in the sky. We will grow in them as a church, but only with his help. And often only through pain, through prayer, and through persistence. Then we can increasingly become a place where we live out our unity Now, we've been talking a lot about unity this week. It's the end of this uh, week of prayer for Christian unity, and there have been various services happening as well. And it's felt in all of our Bible readings the last couple of weeks, there's there's been a lot of stuff about unity. So I always think when that happens, I think God's probably trying to tell us something about unity. (laughs) So what's our unity based on, biblically speaking? Paul goes to three things. In verse 4 he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord. So our unity, firstly then, is based on who God is. Who God is. Our unity is firstly found not in, not in how old we are. That isn't the primary thing that unites us. It's not in uh, what kind of music we like. That's not primarily what unites us. It's not even in what gender we are or or where we live or the kind of food we eat. But our unity, firstly, is in who God is. That there is one Lord. There is one God. So to be united as a Christian is to believe that there is one God. As the Bible shows us, one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians share unity in that they name that same one Lord, Jesus Christ. And in Paul's day, that was a dangerous thing to do, to say that Jesus was Lord, that there is one Lord. Because most of the people living throughout the Roman Empire, under pain of death, would have to say, no, Caesar is Lord. You say, Caesar is Lord, you can live, you can learn, you can, you can do what you need to do. But Christians said, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is one Lord. And that's what united them in the early church. And that's what unites us today. There is unity in who God is. Secondly, there is unity actually in, in how we are made right with God. There is unity in how we are saved. Paul says... 
There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one faith. It may not be a popular thing to say that there are not many different ways to God. A lot of people that we speak to think, well, you know, it all ends up at the same place in the end. But do you see how Paul says that just can't be so? Because it would go against what God is like. It would be calling God a liar. No, there is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one kind of trust that is acceptable to God. And that isn't a trusting in our, in our own goodness or our own good works that we've somehow done enough. That isn't trusting in, in the church that we go to or that we've said a prayer once upon a time. Now this is a real faith. This is the one faith that we live out day to day. This is the kind of one faith that is shown in the good times and in the bad. It is a faith that keeps on going. And I see a, a, a wonderful godly guy once said to me that, Tim, it's a daily decision to pick up your cross and follow Christ. That is the one faith. Unity in who God is. Unity in how we are saved. And unity as a church in who we are. Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Which means that there is one church. One church back in time, one church around the world. Which is why Paul uses baptism. Now, in the Old Testament or or the Old Covenant, there was a sign for being part of God's covenant people. And that was circumcision. And that was the sign that, that you had been chosen to be part of God's people. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we no longer have circumcision, we have baptism. A sign of entry into God's covenant people. And the blessing of being in God's covenant people is well, it's what we've been seeing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. God saying that I will be your God and you will be my people based on what he has done for us. So whatever we think about the church, actually there is one church. And Paul says there is one baptism. Now, we we look around churches and one of the ways that we might see difference is in the way that churches do baptism. And there will be all sorts of difference of opinion in this church. Some churches baptise only adults. Um, Some like BH, well, we baptise the children of believers as well. Some use loads of water. Some use a little. Some like to baptise in a a baptistry in a church. Some like to do it in the river or the sea. We all understand it differently. And actually, you don't have to agree with me. But at the end of the day, there still is one baptism. I wonder, could this be an area where our unity as a church, maybe not now, but maybe one day, could be threatened? Are we going to pursue unity even with people who have different ideas about this? And are we willing to take Paul seriously and believe that there is one baptism, regardless on how we actually work it out in practice? I'm not saying we never talk about it. If if you want to come and talk to me about baptism, that would be great. I get very excited about things like that. 
But actually, we, we, it's the position that we talk about it from, isn't it? We don't talk about it as, as this, is, this is an argument that I've got to win. We talk about it as the fact that we are united. We are in Christ together. We can have differences. Some of those differences we might change on. And actually, part of being a Christian is being open to letting God's word change us. But we do it from a position of unity. That when we, when we challenge each other on some of these things, we do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't allow disunity to enter into it. You see, we have to because we are the church. We are the ones who share in the greatest treasures imaginable. And we are the ones who have the joy of living out this worthy life of all the riches we have in Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Amen.